Well, good morning. Um, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be uh, invited to be able to share this pulpit with other men uh, like Ben and Timothy and Lance and others who uh, have the opportunity to give God's word weekly here. And so it's a, it's a huge honor for me to be able to be invited uh, to do that. So thank you uh, for this opportunity. It, it's a blessing for us as well, because for those of you who don't know us, uh, we live in Portugal, which is in Europe, west of Spain. And so we're church planting there, and so our girls don't get a lot of interaction with kids in English. And, and we don't speak Portuguese in home. A lot of Portuguese ask us that. It's, it just feels a little fake and weird to do that. And so they learn basically at church, and, and our oldest daughter went at school. So we were at the Epiphany party the other day, and to see them running around speaking English, they just came alive. Right? It was just fantastic uh, to see them with that joy and, and that freedom to really be and communicate themselves. So the, Lillian is two. She's the one that ran up and hugged Ben and started crying when I took her away because she wanted Ben a little bit more than dad, which is weird, but it happens. And Arielle is four. She's a little taller. And uh, when she was two, uh, she, she had this addiction with pacifiers, with binkies. And so if you're a parent, you've probably gone through that phase. And it was in the plural because one was never enough. Like one was never enough. She had to have two. And she would like, taste them like wine, like go back and forth and, and feel the textures, and it, it was a little weird. And, but So to get her off this, we had a rule. Binkies are for bed. It was a really hard rule for her, but binkies are for bed. And so this one day, uh, she didn't take a nap, and so if you're a parent, you know, like, when that happens, it's, it's war day. Like, you just have to be ready for what comes, and, and we're like, okay, divide and conquer. We're going to do this. We're going to get through the day. And so I had made the dinner, and... Uh, I get well in the kitchen. I do, do all right. And so I made the dinner. I came out. I was excited. I love when they love the food because they're incredibly picky. And I set the food down, and she looked up at me, and she looked at the plate, and she looked back and just started screaming in tears, I want chocolate! I was just shocked. Like, what is going on? My daughter's possessed right now. And, and so I tried to negotiate, and as the states say, we never negotiate with terrorists. I lost. It was typical. And I was like, come on, honey, just try a bite. Just try a bite. You're going to love it. And I want chocolate. And at this point now, she doesn't even make sense. Just the cries are just making nothing make sense that comes out of her mouth. So I said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. You can go to your bed. You can have your binky. And when you're feeling ready and happy again, you can come back. So I put her down. And she just falls to the ground like a wounded warrior, like saving Private Ryan, crawling back to her bedroom. And so I just follow her there, and I'm trying to comfort her. You don't have to do this. We can go back. And I want my binky. So I put her in the bed. And at this point, she's just extending her arms for the binkies and crying. And the second it touches her mouth, it was just like peace. Just staring at me like, what do you, you can go back now. You know, I don't need you. And so like I always do, it's like, OK, when you're happy again, you can come on back and eat with us. We miss you. We love you. Sometimes when she didn't go back from the table, we'd be like, we sure miss Ariella. And then all of a sudden, you'd hear the pitter-patter come back. This time, within a minute, we heard, we heard her feet coming, burst through the door, and she was all smiles and was like, Ariella, happy. Sat down, ate all the food without me even asking. It was just wild. Was, if you're a parent and you've gone through that phase, you know that pacifier is a powerful tool, right? I mean, it's... And, and, and we watch our kids go through these phases, right? It goes from maybe it wasn't a pacifier, maybe it was a blanket, a teddy bear, right? And, and through life, there's always these little things that uh, when they become emotional, when, when, when they're scared, whatever it is, 
they run to it, you know? And we think that we're not like that, but if you look at your life and, and maybe family members and those who are around you, sometimes it's easier to see in someone else, we're not very different, right? Uh, some of us have, maybe it's that hobby, that thing we do. When, when we're stressed, we had a hard day at work or school was just horrible, it's like, man, I gotta go fishing. Yeah, I gotta go shoot guns, you know, or I need to build something, right? And maybe it's binge watching Netflix or maybe it's a person, you know, man, I just gotta call mom, just gotta call mom. Honey, I'm right here. No, I gotta call mom, you know? Maybe it's, uh, sometimes it's something more harmful, right? It's, it's, it could be alcohol, it could be an, an addiction, it could be whatever. That thing that we like run to that becomes, in a sense, our pacifier, our comfort, right? Um, and, we, and, and we tend to have those in our lives, right? If, just like the reading, if you have a Bible, we're in 1 Kings 18, and we're going to unpack that a little bit, and, what, and how that plays out in our life and, and its relationship to God and having Christ in the center. So we're in 1 Kings 18. But what I want to do, uh, instead of just walk through it and, and, and explain it, I want to give a little context first. So at this moment of Israel's history, this is probably one of the lowest, saddest moments in Israel. Uh, Israel had gone through a series of just really horrible and weak kings. Right? And so many of us, I know it's weird being in Portugal and watching politics in America for the last six years. And, and a lot of us, we get frustrated. Oh, so-and-so is just a weak leader. And no, oh, the other guy's a weak leader. And we get to be, these were really weak men. These were really horrible kings. Uh, and Ahab is our current king right now. And his father was the king before him. And he was so bad that it says in, in 16 that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So what, what were the things he did? He himself had killed, robbed, and led the nation, as an example, into more idolatry than maybe ever before. And so as the nation's following this, God is watching this chaos. And, and, and we ask, how did that happen? Right? How, does, how does it go from king after king going from worshiping God and experience his blessing to just falling apart within a couple generations, right? And one of those reasons actually is because of who he married, right? When I got married, I remember multiple people telling me, man, you really married up. I'm like, I know. No, really, you married up. I don't, what was she thinking? Like, okay, back off. He married down. Right? I don't know if you've ever heard of the name Jezebel, and this was his wife. This is who he married, and, and Jezebel was from another nation, right? So it was kind of a political alliance marriage type of thing, but the problem was... God had already said, don't marry foreigners of other nations because you will adopt their gods, right? It was for a purpose. Don't do that. It wasn't some weird, racist, ethnocentric type of thing. It was to protect the worship of God and the prosperity of the nation. And her father was not only the king of this other nation, but he was also like the high priest. And this, this religion of theirs, this Canaanite religion, practiced so much Filth. It was horrible. For example, uh, uh, some acts of worship of theirs to kind of buy the blessing of the gods, Baal and Asherah, the goddess, they would go to the temple and have relations with the temple prostitutes, males and females, boys and girls. And this was some weird form of worship or buying the god's blessing or whatever. And, and their, their religious art, if you could call it that, their statues that they had spread across the lands were in the form of reproductive organs. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And, and, and in desperate moments for the nation or for people, they would even resort to sacrificing their own children, babies. 
Right? In some sort of like weird plea, a, 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 a showing of radical loyalty and a desperate transaction for help, they would kill their children. And therefore, so when we see that God tells, do not marry these foreigners and adopt their religion, it, it makes a little bit more sense, right? For those of us who struggle and, and we hear that, wow, that sounds, that makes a little bit of sense. I'm a dad. I love my daughters, Lillian and Ariella. And if one of them, I lived in that time, they came home with a boy and was like, daddy, but Johnny... He was a family man. He wants to have babies, and he's an artist. I'm probably going to prison. Right? It's, it's not going to be good for that kid. And so we kind of understand why God was doing this. So here we are in this time, and, and Jezebel obviously had a, a passion and a zeal for her own religion. And so she sees this marriage as an opportunity to really kill the worship of God, of Yahweh, in Israel and start up this worship. And so they enter into this campaign of basically driving out and killing off all the prophets and religious leaders of God and importing 450 of Baal and 400 of Asherah, the goddess. And it's in this moment, this time, that this man and prophet, Elijah, is called. And Elijah, is, he's really a fascinating character. I, I think during this week, if you make the time, to read 16 through 18 just to see this story unfold. And he's interesting because he's clearly, he's a unique prophet, right? I mean, there's just no one like him. And at the same time, there's so much, I think, that we can identify with him in his struggles, right? He, he was passionate about justice, right? He's like an old school social justice warrior and cared about justice and the actual playing out of the faith in the, the lives of people. He was a, a man of prayer. Like when he prayed, the foundations of heaven were shook and things happened, right? He mentored and discipled and led other people, other men to follow in his footsteps and take after him when he was done in his ministry. And yet at the same time, we see even in the middle of our story, we won't get to it, but in the middle of our story, when he is so emotionally tortured, depressed, and praying a suicidal prayer, Lord, just take my life. And so if you've ever struggled with that, you know, you can go through those things and it, and it feels like you're alone, feels like God doesn't hear you, and certainly would never use you. And yet we see from an example of someone like him, God loves to take broken but willing people to do amazing things. And it encourages me personally when I'm struggling with the questions and the doubts of, okay, yeah, you can use someone like Ben, but I'm no Ben. You, know, you can use someone like Elijah, but I'm not calling fire from heaven. That's what encourages us for the call that God has for his people. So he calls Elijah and, and sends him to confront the king Ahab. And he goes and he says these words. He says in 17.1, I just imagine him chest puffed out, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the text says right after that, the Word of the Lord came to him and said, run. So he books it and hides in the east for three years hiding because he becomes the most wanted man by the king and queen. Why? Because it did not rain and the entire land enters into this famine and drought. For three years. I know I'm originally from Utah, the Salt Lake area, and so we're a desert with very similar climates here. And you know, it, Nampa's an agricultural, you know, at least historically place. When, it, when there's a drought, like we don't get enough snow, it's not raining enough, it's tough, right? The fires and the, the lack of produce and families are hurting, right? Animals are dying, that's, that's our livelihood. 
And so you can imagine for three years, by the act of God preventing this to happen, this is a wake-up call. And sometimes we ask, God, why would you do that? You know, why, would, why would you do something like that that affects so many people? And I'm not, I don't believe, and I'm not saying that every act of nature is God's active hand, but clearly, God, you either are doing something or you permit things to happen. And many of us had those questions during the pandemic. And I don't know if you were affected by it or not. We had many people at our church who lost loved ones. We had a church of 20-something people, and they're talking about their friends and family members dying early on and later on. And so we wonder, God, what is going on? Why, are you, why would you do something like this? The text doesn't say why he did this in this passage, but I believe that in, in, in some sense he was doing this act to show what it looks like when we kick God out of our lives, right? When I say no to God, I'm not simply saying I want to be a person without a religion. I'm saying no to all that he gives, like all the provision, all the, the one who sends the rain, the one who made the rain, you know, all the peace in the hard times, all these things, I'm saying, no, I don't need that. The eternal life, peace in hard times, you can have it, I don't need it. And so in some way, he's saying, while there's still time, turn back to me. Right? This is an act of love. Turn back to me. Come to the Father's arms. And so, after three years of this painful time, the word comes to Elijah and says, okay, it's time to go back. And so he goes before the king, and we're in verse 17. And when the king sees Elijah, now we're going to kind of walk through the text, he says, is that you, troubler of Israel? And you can just imagine Elijah's like, me, trouble of it? Okay, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And he basically says, look, it's enough. Okay, just go and summon the people from all of Israel and meet me at Mount Carmel. Oh, yeah, and bring your 450 prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. He's basically saying, it's time for a showdown. Enough's enough. So the king calls everyone, the prophets, the people, and they all gather at Mount Carmel. And you can imagine it, it, this mountain functions a bit like an arena that everyone would be able to see what's happening. And so just imagine as you're one of the people walking in, the scene happening, because that's a lot of people. This is a lot of people, and probably not literally every person from the nation came, but those who were available and could, they went. The king said, don't disobey. And so as you're filing in, you can imagine, you see out in the distance one guy just glaring before this multitude of 950 people, and people are wondering, is that the guy who, this famine's because of him? They just need to get rid of him. He doesn't even have an army. What is he doing here? You know, he's, he's the one of that old religion. No, no, that is our religion. He's going to save us. He's going to fix all this. And as he probably, I imagine him just glaring at the prophets and probably the king and queen sitting down in chairs there. And as they come in and finally everyone gets settled in and he's just been sitting there, he finally breaks the silence. And instead of talking to the king and queen, he looks at us. He looks at the people. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? I'm reading from the NIV. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And no one answered. Just silence. I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450. A little further, he tells him, go get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophet choose for one for themselves and let him cut it into pieces and put it on wood, but do not set fire to it. I will prepare the other and I will put it on the wood. 
but I will not set fire to it. In verse 24, then you call on the name of your God, I will call on the name of, the, of mine, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Or in other words, he's the real God. I can imagine the prophets are looking around like, well, have you ever done something like this? I never learned this in pagan seminary. This is weird, but let's do it. And all the people, they like it. Like, this is great. Let's do it. So they killed the bull and did as Elijah described, calling on their God, Baal. From morning until noon, shouting, Baal, answer us. The Bible says there was no response. No one answered, just silence. And they start dancing around the altar, and not even their country line dance is getting their God's attention, right? It's just silence this whole time. And at noon, Elijah, verse 27, began to taunt them. Shout louder. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or he's busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. So they start shouting louder, slashing themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Just silence. I want to take a, a, a pause for us right here. And I think this is so important to understand. Because I need to realize that when I have my hope, my, my trust into an idol, a false god, a functional idol even in my life, that pacifier god that I run to, when I'm truly in need in times of, of desperation, of help, I need you to answer, the only thing that I will hear is silence. And so that begs the question for me. As I think through this, what or who is really on the throne in my heart? Because right? it's, it's so easy for me to believe in God, but put Jesus in my life. But really, as like king, there's a lot of competition there, if I'm being honest. Right? And I know that uh, the tendency for me is that when those times of trouble come, I don't run to Jesus. Right? I'm running to something or someone else. And then I'll often project that onto God. Like, why aren't you doing anything? Why? You're not even helping me. It's like, well, you went to your pacifier, God. So what is it that's in my life? Anything that could take center stage and receives my devotion ends up being a functional idol for us. Elijah turns and says, okay, it's my turn. He says to the people, come closer. And he began to repair the altar of the Lord, which was destroyed. He, he, he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes. He's representing us there, the people in that land, and it, those who descended from Jacob. And he rebuilt the altar for the worship of God. Right. And so in, in a sense, he's saying when, when, when in times of crisis, when, when things have fallen apart, nations, families, everything, what we need to do is not be focusing on literally just rebuilding us. We need to rebuild the worship of God in our life. When we get that right, he'll start taking care of the rest. And he digs a massive trench around the altar and puts the fire on top and then the bowl. And he tells them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And they did. And he says, do it again. And they did. And he said, do it a third time. And they obeyed. At this point, you can imagine everything is so soaked in water that he's saying, look, God, it's only by your power. This is you. And so he steps forward to the altar, and he prays these words in verse 36. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your command. Right? 
He's saying, look, all this crazy stinks, all these crazy ideas, this is all you, so don't back out now. Answer me, Lord, verse 37, answer me, so that the people will know that you are Lord, that you are Yahweh, that you are God, and you are turning their hearts back again. And as was read, in this moment, fire falls down. The text says a fire of the Lord falls and burns everything. Just consumes the the bowl, the sacrifice, the wood, even the stones and the soil. It licks up the water in the trenches. Nothing is left. God just dropped the mic in this moment. And the people responded well. It says they fell prostrate, foreheads to the floor, shouting and calling out, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord is God. I imagine that was in a terrifying recognition. And Elijah responds, then get rid of these guys. It's such an amazing story. It's one of those powerful stories that it's like, Lord, is this real? Like, I, I'm a person, I, I, if I'm being honest, I sometimes I struggle with these stories. Like, did you really do this? Like, is this made up? It's phenomenal. It's a story that shows how only the living God can come running and answer when we call on him. And so as, as I made the question to reflect on what or who is in God, in the place of God in my life, what really prevents me from leaning in and having deep fellowship with Jesus, those functional idols. And I think for a lot of us, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard a sermon on idolatry. And we know it's not that we're not literally worshiping little stones and statues and things made by man, but we have the tendency to make very big in our life things like consumerism, Sex, food, a hobby, a person, right? a dream, a job, a title, an education. You know, Depending on the phase of life, you kind of finish with one and you move on to the next little God. But what I want to suggest for us today <clears throat> is something a little bit different. Is one that I think many of us in the West struggle with. Many of us, Portugal, America, whatever, is my image of God or maybe God made in my image. And I'm going to explain that. Uh, a, a few years ago, a few years ago, many years ago, uh, a store opened up, and I'm sure many of you remember it. It's not so popular anymore. It was Build-A-Bear. Anybody know Build-A-Bear? Okay, remember that? So it was fantastic. I don't know if I want to put that near the fire. Let me use a chair. It was fantastic because if you don't know what it is, you go into this Build-A-Bear workshop. It's amazing. You go into a Build-A-Bear workshop, and you get to choose and make this bear in your image, like you get to build it from zero. So you get to choose the size, you get to choose the fabrics. Is it gonna be white, is it brown? Is it, you get to choose the clothes. This one here is a baby shark bear. You, know, you could have gangster bear, you could have agriculture nampa bear, you know, whatever that kind of thing. You, you get to build it as you want. It could be a mixture of all those different things, the eyes, the mouth, the nose. And in the end, if you wanna give it to someone, you could record a voice and say, I love you, baby, you know, or whatever. Happy Valentine's Day. You get to literally build that bear from zero and make it your own. And so in some weird way, there's no other teddy bear that exists like this one. It's not statistically true, but that's how you feel, right? There's no other bear that exists. And in some way, I think that we have this tendency to have this Build-A-Bear workshop in our heart, a Build-A-God workshop in our heart, because we tend to do this with God. We, we tend to like choose the things that we like about God, the verses that I like, the passages. You know, my, my, No, my God is... He's, he accepts everyone. He loves everything. He's that social justice Jesus and doesn't judge anything. For some of us on the other side, no, he's that moral authority. And if you get it wrong, he puts you down. You can, no, you, he doesn't just accept that. 
You shouldn't even be in church if you're like that, right? And, and, we can, and our God, he tends to be, he's a, obviously a very white, very Republican God, you know, or for the other side. No, he's, he's, he's a, obviously a Democrat and he takes care of everybody. He's, you know, social. And we tend to put these titles and these things on God and we can never imagine him not being like us. Really, What I believe, I believe it because obviously it's biblical and it's of God. And, and the opposite can be true for us. Sometimes it's actually because I'm projecting that on him. Right? And so we have this tendency. And, and what we do is we, we kind of build this form of Jesus that we want to see, the God we want to see in the Bible, and then we worship him. Right? And that's the one we're bowing down to. And the problem with that is, is how far can I get away from the actual God of the Bible? Though I still use his name, and it's the God that actually exists. And, and in my times of need and desperation, I'm calling out to him, wondering why there's just silence. The problem with that is when we find ourselves in the famine, in the drought of our lives, when we cry out, we'll hear silence. There's no power in a God that's made in my image. Only in the God who always was and is and forever will be. And it doesn't matter the sincerity or the dedication I have to that God. Where's the good news in this? Here's the good news. What we didn't read today in our story, but I alluded to, was a part of the story in which Elijah was alone. When he went into the drought and the famine of his life, those three years as he ran to the wilderness without food, without strength, without water, he couldn't even take care of him. He was depressed and emotionally tortured, and he wanted to give up on life, and yet God heard him. He heard it, and he saw him, and he attended to him. In those moments, he, he, when, God, when Elijah cried out to God, there was not silence but the Father's perfect care and love. He miraculously took care of Elijah, bringing food from birds, using people around him in his life to orchestrate, to give him bread. As he cried out, really ready to give up, God never gave up on him, but continued to take care of him and nurture and attend to his needs. And so the good news is that we have a God who hears the cry of his people. Even in times of pandemic, even in times when marriage is falling apart, when I don't have hope or future for my job and finances, like he's hearing and he's present. And he's good and faithful, whether it's to bring fire to consume the lies and idols that harm us or to take care of the physical and emotional needs that we have. He heard Elijah when he was alone in the wilderness, and he heard him when he was alone surrounded by all those who desired harm. And it's the same God who hears me and you. And that is really good news. So for us, I think our response to, to such a powerful and amazing story as we're wrapping up, as I reflect on that, I reflect on the character and the nature of this God. I, I, I rebuild the worship in my life. I should be active about finding the Build-A-Bear workshops, the Build-A-God workshops in my heart. Because right? I want to get rid of those. I want to really lean into and have fellowship with the God who came to me first. We don't want to wait until the great famine and droughts of our lives to return to God. So maybe for you, there could be different applications. You could be asking yourself, is there something I'm avoiding dealing with? Have I really came to the point in my life where I said yes to Jesus, the Messiah, the King, 
right? That title has implications. If he's Messiah, that means he's king. That means it demands a response from me. Maybe for us, if, if, you're, if you're having a hard time figuring out what to do with that, this is what I would say for this week, and you can take this challenge if you want, is to pray the words that David prayed in Psalm 139 as a prayer for you. And he prayed this, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious, anxious thoughts. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Why? Because he says in the next verse, this is the very end of Psalm 139, see if there's any offensive way in me to the purpose of and lead me in the way everlasting. If I don't go deal with those pacifier and build-a-bear gods, they're going to rob, rob what God has for me, which is life abundant, experiencing the kingdom today and obviously when he returns in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And we desire this because we want you. Like one of the tribes of Israel, you were their portion, you were their inheritance, and that's what we want. Help us, Lord, to find that you would point out in love and in grace those functional idols in our lives. And reveal to us, as, as, as we are a people of the word, who is the God of the Bible? Who is just, who is perfect, who is loving, merciful, and yet calling into holiness. Let us see you for who you are, revealed perfectly in Jesus. Help us this week be with us in a special way to remind us that this will become our prayer as we meditate on you. In Jesus' name.